always find the parts of the Christian calendar year interesting because, um, well, let me just give you a little theological test. He is risen. Okay, you passed. Good. Because every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And when we commemorate it, we're remembering that there's a history and there's a people, and that's good. And every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. We're looking this morning at a question that um, Judas, one of the disciples, asked Jesus. We're in John chapter 12. I'm going to read the text, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And when I finish reading, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and if you want to respond to that, you can. And if you'd like to say praise be to Christ, I think that'd be an acceptable response. Many of you grew up in different traditions. You can say what your tradition said, unless it's obnoxious. This is why we have other people read the text some weeks. Again, I'm in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So Judas was for Jesus. Throughout the gospel story, his narrative is a really challenging one because all the disciples missed some of the teachings of Jesus at times. But... uh, Peter, as an alternative, will even up into Acts chapter 9, continue to misunderstand, and even Acts 15, parts of the gospel of Jesus, but he continues to return to Christ with open hands and with humility. Judas was for Jesus, and at this point in the earthly ministry of Jesus, he turns. He begins to turn away from Jesus, but I, I was thinking a lot two weeks ago when I wrote the sermon about how much time he spent with Jesus. Do you know how much walking they did? If you look at Jesus went from Capernaum to Jerusalem to Galilee and and the different stories throughout the Gospels, it's hard to imagine them walking together less than 3,000 miles. This is a lot of walking. Judas was part of the group of 72 that Jesus sent out and gave them authority, similar to Jesus' authority over sickness and evil spirits. And he saw miraculous things happen. He saw the over 40 miracles Jesus performs in the Gospels. You know, it's, it's confusing to number the miracles of Jesus because sometimes it's an incredible miracle that, that people saw and gave evidence for historically. And then sometimes it'll say something like, and he did many other great things. And you're like, wow, love to see that list. But at least 40 different occasions, Judas saw Jesus perform miracles that had the purpose of supporting the Gospel, supporting the good news, that faith in Jesus leads to life, real life here, and eternal life. 
But Judas was for Jesus, as best I can tell, because he wanted Jesus to restore the nation of Israel out of the Roman occupation, which isn't a bad desire. But we cannot approach Jesus with conditions and expectations. It doesn't work because he's God. Judas presents us with another challenge for those of us that read the scriptures because obviously he has free will. Disciples either learned kind of right before this or maybe after that he was stealing for them. But in Luke chapter 22 and later in the book of John, it's described as Satan entering him. That's why he ends up turning on Jesus. And the scriptures do this repeatedly. And I bring it up as often as the text encourages me to bring it up because I want us to uh, be students of the scripture because therein is life. And what the scripture asks us to um, embrace is the fact that God is sovereign, that he knows everything, that he knows your yesterday, today, and the future. And we have free will, right? I could just stop talking. That would make for a challenging sermon in some respects. Or maybe an easy sermon. You just read your Bible or sleep. And God would know before, during, and after that that was going to happen. And as we consider the scriptures, we're encouraged by the scriptures to remember that he is sovereign and to remember that we have free will. And one of those things is pure, his sovereignty. One of those things is altogether good. One of those things knows the future entirely and the past. And one of those things is unlimited. His power and sovereignty and, novel, and knowledge are unlimited. And our free will, and especially our perception of how free will works, is impure. It does long for good. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been given a new heart, and you long for good things. Not perfectly. Your affections have not been purified, but you do long for good. But our free will doesn't know the future, and it is limited. And it, it, it's so interesting because, on the one hand, it's ironic to think that we can understand these things in the same way that we understand math. Like, we're not going to understand the sovereignty of God and our free will like math. On the other hand, it's lazy to not live in the tension that Scripture regularly asks us to live in. You know what I'm talking about? People that focus on free will treat the words election and predestination like they're bad words. They're in the Scriptures. And sometimes people that love to talk about election and predestination use them like a stick to whack people. I believe we're called to study the Scriptures because what we learn is not the math of sovereignty and free will, but we learn about the character of God. In the human face and human voice of Jesus, who was listening even to Judas, right before Judas is going to betray him. And what's he doing? He's offering a moment for Judas to repent. We have this double moment in John chapter 8 of Judas, the religious disciple, who longs for Jesus to restore the kingdom, which isn't a bad longing, except that that's the only way, apparently, that he can accept Jesus, which means he was trying to use him, and to a lesser extent, Mary. Judas is contrasted with Mary of Bethany, who might be the first Christian mystic, sits before Jesus, beautifully worships him, caring not at all what the people around her think. How beautiful religion is when it's a response to love and how 
ugly it is when it's a means of control. We do not approach Jesus with our expectations. It doesn't work. He is the Logos in John chapter 1. In the Old Testament, God gives his name to the nation of Israel and they were so careful about pronouncing it that they added different vowels to remind us of the transcendent glory and holiness of God. One of the Hebrew names for God is El Shaddai, and if you have a respectable Bible, no offense to those of you that don't have this footnote, it'll say we don't actually know exactly what El Shaddai means because it's such an old and powerful word. It probably means something along the lines of Almighty. You do not approach the Logos, Yahweh, Adonai, El Shaddai, with expectations. It doesn't work. So this friend of Jesus and disciple is beginning to turn on him through what Mary is doing for Jesus, and Jesus pushes back because Mary's loving him, not just with her feelings, but with her actions. And, and let's, let's talk about the amount of spikenard. That's probably what she was using. I'm going to equate this to 2019 terms and say this was $52,000 worth of perfume. I think we would have been troubled if somebody lit uh, $52,000 in cash on fire and said this is a fragrant offering for the Lord. I think we might be, at least initially, tempted to be like, um, right? And yet Jesus is not at all, because Mary is doing what others described as the role of a follower of God and what Jesus described. She's loving the Lord with her heart, mind, soul, and strength, and she's doing so very specifically. And we're going to talk about specific worship and, and corporate worship, and we're all wired very differently. Some of you are introverted. And I kind of wonder if introverts are better at loving people because they don't get anything out of it like us extroverts. I'm serious. Some of us have more money and some less, and that's part of our worship. The Apostle Paul calls that an act of grace. Some of us are exuberant, and you're like, that's not very Presbyterian, but I'm exuberant. It's good that you're exuberant. It actually is Presbyterian in truth, but we get a bad rap that we probably earned. Anyway, some of us are quieter in how we worship the Lord individually. Mary is, is individually worshiping Jesus, though others are there. Some of us are, are multiplier of words. We need to use a lot of words. We're verbal processors. Some of us, you don't need that, and you do not understand us verbal processors, and you're not alone. That's all right. We have corporate movements of worship also. The Eucharist that we'll take this Thursday at our Monday Thursday service, the Lord's Supper, we do that corporately. The Psalms are both for our individual and for corporate use. That's why we utilize them to call ourselves to worship. We use the Lord's Prayer and songs. And I want to remind us of this because these are human things to do in light of the existence of God. We worship. And there are ways that you as an individual will enjoy easier than others. I remember reading over 20 years ago, Brendan Manning describing a prayer posture of laying on his back with his knees up, and he didn't fall asleep in that position. Some of you would. And I love that because I was having back trouble at the time. And kneeling as a posture of worship was challenging for me. And I felt it was so freeing. Worshiping the Lord individually is part of what we do in light of the existence of God 
and the good news of Jesus. And I want you to know that it is actually quite beautiful when you worship. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, talking about our resurrected selves after the earth has been made new, says that your neighbor is someone you would be tempted to worship. Go ahead and look around at one another. Not even tempted. <laughs> right? And I'm going to be honest with you, this is probably the nicest set of clothes that I own. My stepmom bought all of this for me except the socks. And she's a very generous person. These are probably my nicest clothes. My hair is cut, and you're not even remotely tempted. And if you are, don't. Don't worship me. <laughs> Let me be super clear as a pastor. But in your glorified state, when you have been made new and the earth has been made new, what you actually look like, your neighbor would be tempted to worship. And your spiritual self, which exists right now, but we can't see it, is a being of such beauty that the others, would, the others in the room, if they could see it, would be tempted to worship you. Your worship is beautiful. As she worships and as Judas asks the question, Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. And I need to, to tell you something about that. That is not a quote to defend your, your politics. There are quotes that defend them. That isn't it. Deuteronomy 15, which Jesus is quoting, is about the corporate role of, of caring for the poor. The reason he's quoting that is to remind them of that and to focus on her worship. There are ways to defend your politics, but it's not this. It's not John chapter 12. Jesus says this in order to defend what Mary's doing. If you want to hear the much stronger way that I said that in the first service, I'll tell you. <laughs> Got some very funny facial looks. That's redundant. The reason Jesus says it is a direct though gentle pushback on Judas and a gentle and direct affirmation of Mary when he says, leave her alone. Because worship is a fundamental part of human existence. And her response was beautiful. Judas came to Jesus for his agenda. And when Mary comes only to worship Jesus, and Judas pushes back with a question, Jesus first says, leave her alone. And every pushback in Scripture, everyone that I could think of as I was working on this sermon, is an opportunity for us to learn to repent. And we must notice this about the character of Jesus. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He still offers him a chance to repent, both of stealing from the rest of the disciples, which means that they trusted Judas, by the way. In the, rabbinic, the way that the rabbinical teaching worked, you give the money back to someone who's trusted so that they can all corporately eat. They must have found out at some point that he was stealing. Every pushback is an opportunity to repent and to learn a lifestyle of repentance. That's why Jesus continues to pursue Judas, not only to teach him and the disciples that what Mary is doing is beautiful, but also that we can learn that in the book of Genesis, as soon as the fall happens... 
Cain and Jesus have this conversation, well, it was Jesus, Cain and the Lord have a conversation after Cain has killed his brother, and each moment is an opportunity to repent. The prophets, in their criticism of the nation of Israel, it's an opportunity for the nation to repent. Job's friends, you know the book of Job? One of the strongest pushbacks, I think, in Scripture. God says, you spoke about me wrong. Is an opportunity for us to come to the Lord open-handed and learn about him and his character and what it means to respond to his love. The alternative to using Jesus for our own ends is worship. Jesus is not only pushing back on Judas, Judas, he's defending Mary. Mary understands something about his burial. Jesus, in the defense, says she knows that this is for my burial. And it's worth noting, in, in this series specifically, as we look at the questions people ask to Jesus, we note that Samaritans and pagans and Romans and women often understood Jesus more quickly and more fully than those who knew the Old Testament text. And I think the reason that's there is not only because it happened that way, historically and evidentially, but also to show Jesus continually pursuing his religious followers back to himself. Peter is often contrasted with Judas because they similarly misunderstand Jesus and and had similar expectations of him, but Judas' expectations were open-handed. I'm sorry, got that wrong. Peter's expectations of Jesus were open-handed and humble, and he was willing to be corrected over and over and over again. Peter understood, and then he didn't understand. All, all into Acts chapter 15. And the question that I think we see in John chapter 12 with Mary and with Judas, and I think it applies to us also, is why are you here? Why are you in front of Jesus? And this applies to us also. Are we here for our agenda to be met or are we here to worship because Jesus is King and Savior and we've come to the end of ourselves and realize we cannot save ourselves? So we're humble in approaching Him. Or are we coming because this is a religious thing to do? Are we coming because we long to feel like we checked the religious box? And I wonder if you wonder, I wonder if your question that's embedded in this text is, does my worship matter? Do my prayers matter? Some of you have been attending this church or others for years and you wonder, does it matter to my humanity? Does it matter eternally? Does it matter to all going on in the world that I worship? And it would seem that it does not unless these things are true. And I want to give us a little bit of a picture of what our worship looks like in the spiritual realm. The book of Revelation, one of my sub-agendas is to get us to stop saying Revelations. It's one. The Revelation. Chapter 8, did it work? Are we good? One. One Revelation. Describes prayer this way, and I, I, I need you to, we'll talk about this a lot in the fall because I'm going to do a whole series on the book, the letter. The truths in the Revelation are no more true for you than they were for the followers of Jesus in Smyrna, one of the seven churches. That doesn't mean we're not closer to the end. Of course we're closer. It's 2019. But the truths are just as profound. So when worship, which is a very regular part of the book, 
and prayer, which is a very regular part of the book, are described, it is showing us what it looks like when we worship God. And it is showing us the power of our prayers. Apocalypse doesn't mean the end of times. That's eschatology or eschaton. Apocalypse means uncovered. So like when you're cooking something in the crock pot and you're not sure what's in there because it's all fogged up and you uncover it and then the smell and you know it's pot roast. That's actually an apocalyptic moment. Something's uncovered. I'm totally serious. This is what your prayers look like in the spiritual realm from the Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Your prayers are beautiful and powerful in ways that we cannot sense or understand but this is what they look like in the spiritual realm. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The Revelation has a lot to say about the end of times. It has more to say about worship and prayer and allegiance. And there's more for us to be encouraged about in the short term. Mary's worship of Jesus was beautiful, and so is yours. Judas turns on Jesus and the disciples. Jesus pushes back to defend Mary and to prepare us. Worship is what we do not only as a response to the existence of God and the love revealed in Jesus Christ, but also as a response to actual life. Good worship involves both being able to sing sad songs and praises. Sing praises in our seasons of disorientation as an act of defiance and hope to sing sad songs, even on our good Sundays, because we know the world is not as it should be. I don't know if you can hear the extra energy in my voice. It's because we had a delightful vacation. And it is still good, after a delightful vacation, to sing sad songs, because the world is not yet as it should be. And when we do that, something profound is happening in our being. We are learning to worship in spirit and in truth. It is human to do so in light of the existence of God, the revelation that we're loved and because of Jesus approached the throne of grace. It's also a, a, a tool of the Holy Spirit's to disciple us. Quick question, please don't answer out loud. Please go ahead and write it down if you want to. What part of our worship service is the most challenging for you? Meaning you don't like it. That's probably an area 
of the Holy Spirit's sanctification in you. I'll tell you my least favorite, and I run the service. It's confession. Almost every time I discipline my children, I have to confess my sin to them because my handling of that discipline is usually pretty imperfect. I have theological reasons that the confession makes me uncomfortable because even though we're commanded to confess, I know we're already forgiven. But I think the real thing that's happening in my humanity is it's humbling to repent to your 10-year-old, though less humbling than when she was four. Man, repenting to a four-year-old is tough. What part of our service makes you uncomfortable? Probably an area the Holy Spirit is growing you in. The ability to sing happy songs. The ability to sing sad songs. The ability to confess. Remembering that we are supposed to not only ask for help, but persist in our asking for help. One or perhaps all of those are challenging to us. These are the ways that the Holy Spirit is growing us up. And that might sound like vague religious application to consider it throughout the week, but here's the thing. Do you see how the things we do corporately are guiding us into the with God life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? I get used to confession among you fine people, and I'm a little bit better able to do it in my home and to teach my children not only right and wrong, but a more importantly, that I'm forgiven, therefore they can forgive me, and we haven't, not only have we not sacrificed anything as father and daughter, they've learned about my humanity, which desperately needs the grace and mercy and help of Jesus. Thank you for not answering out loud, the part of our service you like the least, but maybe something to consider on Monday or Thursday as an area that the Holy Spirit is growing you in. But what Mary was doing was responding to Jesus. Mary of Bethany had no problem with an extravagant gift to Jesus. By the way, when they would honor people in that time, they would pour the spikenard over their head. But she knew Jesus was so much further to be lauded, that his name is so much sweeter than any Caesar or king or ruler or religious teacher, she anointed his feet. She did that because she knew Jesus' beauty and strength and love and mercy. We hear his voice listening even to Judas in this last minute because he is so patient and kind and yet he will not be used for our expectations or purposes. The only alternative available to us is to worship and to learn to worship him like Mary did. Because there is no sweeter name than his. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we all approach you with expectations. Of feeling or of believing or 
Would you untangle our hearts and minds and affections, Lord? By faith, would you give us eyes and ears to see your face and hear your voice as you respond so patiently to Judas and to Mary? By faith, would you give us a sense of your incredible love that through your death and life and resurrection, you free us into love of you and neighbor. Holy Spirit, as we sing about your sweet name, draw near to us in ways we can sense and understand. Mature us as worshipers of you and lovers of neighbor. Amen.